Acts chapter 13. So just before we forget what the book of Acts is about, uh, basically in the Gospels we have the account of Jesus' life. And he lived his life to please the Father. And as he did that, one of the things that God called him to do, the plan from the beginning of time, was that God knew that we were going to fail at living in the garden in peace, that he knew that we would rebel against him, that we would reject his love, that we would, despite his one commandment in the garden, he said, don't partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Satan comes along and he says, you know what? Did God really say that you couldn't eat from the trees in the garden? Of course, he twisted what God said. He didn't say that he couldn't, they couldn't eat from the trees in the garden. They just said that the one tree in the garden that you can't eat from, please don't. And of course, they were tempted by Satan. They saw that it was good for food, that it might make them wise. It would make them like God. And so they grabbed that fruit. Eve did, and she partook of it. And then she basically looked at Adam and goes, hey, don't leave me hanging here. You're not going to, I mean, I sin, but I mean, don't leave me alone in this. And so she gave it to her husband and he, instead of saying, no, God said not to, he ate it too. He was tempted. And so uh, because of that, we have the fall. We have this disobedience towards God. And so from that point on, if you look at the Old Testament, every one of those boring lineages that they go through, we oftentimes look at them, we're like, oh, name after, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. And we're just like, why? I, didn't, I do not want to read that. I mean, who would want to? Well, of course, all of us would want to if our name was in there, right? We would want, hey, you know, it's kind of looking at the pictures from Family Reunion. Hey, there's me. You know, I was there, you know, and, and we really like to see that. We like to see ourselves involved in it. But my point is, is that from the point of the fall all the way through history, God's redemption plan is being unfolded one chapter at a time. And through the lineage from Adam all the way to a man by the name of Abraham, there was this opportunity, this opening up so that God could start his redemption plan as he spoke to Abraham, gave him the promise, and then through Abraham, he went to all the way to Jacob, Isaac, and he basically started a nation by the name of Israel. Now we call it. And that nation was supposed to be a light to the whole world and a picture of how much God loves the whole world, the people that had rejected him through Adam. Rebellion against his word. And so he gave the people of Israel the law, the Ten Commandments, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the five books of the law. And that law was supposed to show them that they couldn't live up to it. It wasn't supposed to prove or make them righteous. It was supposed to show them that this is God's standard. Try and live by it. But what you're going to find out is that it's a mirror that always shows you how imperfect and impossible it is to live up to a holy God's standard. God is so other than us. His standard is not only difficult and impossible for us to do on our own, but it's also something that should show us that we need a Savior. And so Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, he's born through the seed of the woman, which was what was prophesied about in Genesis chapter 1. It wasn't God's plan B, it was his plan from the beginning. And he gave his son as a descendant of Abraham and as a descendant of King David and all of those. He came through their physical family. He was born a Jewish man. But he was also only the half-son of 
Joseph because Joseph wasn't the dad. Joseph was from the kingly lineage, but his father was God, the father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. And so anyway, when Jesus comes on the scene, he lives a perfect life. He fulfills the law to the letter. And then as a result of that, man embraces him and says, thank you, Lord, for a savior. No, they don't say that, right? They rejected him. The people that knew the law, the people that knew the prophecy in the Old Testament, they rejected him because when they came to the word of God, they didn't say, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. When they came to the synagogue or the temple, they said, Lord, we want to show the world how righteous we are as your chosen people. You chose us because we were so good. And they got to this list of do's and don'ts and they said, look at all the stuff we don't do. We don't work on the Sabbath and we don't eat when it's fast day. We make sure that we give our tithes and we do it so that men will see us. Look how great we are. But that was not God's plan. What God wanted to do was take a people that were completely imperfect like the rest of the world, a small nation, and he wanted to show the world through them how gracious that he was, how much he loved them, though that they didn't deserve it. And we oftentimes, we miss that message. We go, well, God picked me because I'm great. But those of us that have been saved, we go, no, God didn't pick me because I'm great. He picked me because it was only something as humble as me that he could show glory through, that he could just bring glory to his name. It's like a surgeon, if he were to do surgery with a rusty instrument and the patient not die because of infection and be healed, you wouldn't say, wow, that scalpel was awesome. You'd say, that doctor did a pretty amazing job. And so in the same way, God desires to use broken people to bring glory to his name and to make himself famous. Not because he's an egomaniac, just because he's good. He is gracious. He is merciful. He's holy. He's so much other than what we are. We're broken. We we fail, we screw up, even when we have the best intentions. And so my point is, is that Jesus came to the world. He was killed by the people that should have known him. They had the scriptures. And when he was killed, the cool thing is, is that it wasn't over. That the good news is, is that when he was put in the grave, that death couldn't hold on to him because on the third day, he rose from that grave. When they went to visit the tomb, the very people that followed him, the disciples, they went to the tomb and they found out that it was empty. And when they got there and saw that it was empty, the angels proclaimed to them, hey, he's not here, he's risen. He's alive. Your savior is not a dead savior. Your God is not a God who can be killed. And so when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to many people. Up to 500, the book of Acts tells us. But when he appeared and then he did miracles and he showed himself to the disciples on the last day of his ascension, he told them, I want you to gather in Jerusalem and I want you to wait because it's, it's good that I leave you and that I, when I leave, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and you're going to do the things that I did. You're going to heal people. You're going to pray with people. You're going to see the dead risen. You're going to proclaim salvation to the rest of the world. <laughs> And so when we look at the book of Acts, we need to remember that these people, these 12 apostles that were sent by Jesus, they weren't great because they were in stained glass and that one day they would be considered to be these saints. The thing that made them great was who was dwelling in them, who had sent them, 
And that was God himself. He gave them his Holy Spirit and he empowered them to, to do mighty works and be bold and proclaim salvation through Jesus, through faith in Jesus, to Jerusalem, he told them, to Judea and Samaria, which was the surrounding area, not just their town, but every area around there. And then he said, as a result of you being filled with the Holy Spirit, some of you are going to be sent to the outer reaches of the entire world, proclaiming that they can be saved through Jesus. And so as a result of that, we've seen in the book of Acts that it's kind of started that way. It's like taking a big rock and throwing it in the middle of a, a palm group of water, like a pond. You guys ever throw a big rock in a pond? And as a result, what happens, the, there's ripple effect. And as those ripples go outward, they end up reaching the entire pond, even though they might be small when they get there. And so God has just dropped this big plan of redemption right in the middle of Jerusalem, shaking up the religious shaking up the non-religious, and really ruffling some feathers. Jesus was not a man that did not come about with controversy. But as a result of that shaking that happened, all the other towns surrounding, and eventually all the countries of the world will be shaken by the message of Jesus Christ. Some will reject it, some will receive it, and we'll see that today in, in the passage we're going to look at. But last week they had gone to a place called Antioch in Pisidia. And you'll see on the map there, it's not the Antioch on the far right, but it's the one up there in the top. The word Asia is there. But this is in present-day Turkey, Cilicia and Lycia there. They had sailed from Cyprus, from Paphos there on the west coast, and they went up to a place called Perga. And we remember that John Mark, the writer that wrote the, the gospel according to Mark, he left them at that point. We don't know why, but... From that point, Paul and Barnabas head from Perga up to Antioch of Pisidia, and there they start to proclaim the message of Christ. They show up in the synagogue, and they had their readings as they would in a synagogue service. They wouldn't uh, necessarily worship, but they would, what they would do is they would read from the first five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then they would read from the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, some of the less known ones like Micah and Habakkuk. But they're all in there. And they would even read from the Psalms. Well, after that time, they would call on somebody that was either educated or a well-known rabbi that was in the congregation. And he would come up and do like I'm doing. He would explain basically what those scriptures meant. But Paul was there that day. He was worn out from travel. And the, the leaders of the synagogue said, Hey, Paul, do you have any word for us? because they knew he was a famous rabbi. So perhaps they didn't know that he had been saved, that he became a Christian. And so they said, Paul, do you have anything to say to us? And Paul, being a man that was not a man of few words, probably not unlike myself, he got up and he spoke, and he explained through the scriptures how Jesus was the fulfillment, and he was the one who came to save their souls. No longer did they have to sacrifice bulls and goats, but salvation would come through the spotless lamb that God had provided, and his life would be given up as a ransom to save many. And so as they had given this message last week, what you'll notice is that as they were leaving service, the Gentiles and a few Jews had heard what Paul said, and it was a new message. They hadn't heard about Jesus being the one that God sent for salvation. They hadn't seen that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. And because Paul had shared this gospel using their own scriptures and explaining to them, the words that they had been reading for so many years came alive to them. 
It was like water on parched ground. It's like the first rain after a really dry summer. All of a sudden, that water would land on the soil of their hearts, and they were like, wow, this is what we've been longing for, the Messiah. And as they had longed for that Messiah, they said, we want to hear this same message. Will you come back and preach next week? And so Paul, of course, no problem, that sounds great. But in the meantime, what they did was they left and they told all their friends. And it says there in Acts chapter 13, verse 42, when the Jews went out of the synagogue, this was the week before, the Gentiles begged. It says they begged that these words might be preached to them again the next Sabbath. Verse 43 says, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and the devout proselytes, this is a group of Jews and Gentiles, they followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them, Paul and Barnabas persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Why would this be a message? Why would they tell them to continue in the grace of God? Because everything that they had heard being in the temple and in the, or excuse me, in the synagogue, they would go every week and the message that would be preached there is, follow the law and God will save you. It's a, it's a gospel that's based on, if you do this, then God will bless you. And, and it was true because the Old Testament taught that. It's not a new message. They still had to deal with sin. And the, the way they would deal with sin was by sacrificing an animal. And then the blood of that animal would be shed over the altar to cover their sins. But at the same time, they had kind of come up with a list based on the Ten Commandments. If you do these things, then God will be happy with you. So their message to them as they followed them after they left the synagogue that day was, we want you to continue in the grace of God. Now we hear the word grace and we may not know what it means, but the word grace means God's unmerited gift. It's something you can't earn. God loving us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. Continue in the grace of God. We're, Ephesians chapter two says, you're saved by grace, not of works, lest any of you should start to brag about your salvation. God saved you not because you deserved it, but because he wanted to give it to you anyway. And so <clears throat> he's telling them, now that you've been saved by grace, many of them received salvation that day, continue in it. Continue to walk in that free gift, realizing every day you're gonna mess up, but you can confess that sin and be forgiven because of that same sacrifice of Jesus. You don't have to go and, and be saved again. You're still saved, but you need to repent and confess that you messed up. And God already knows that, but what he wants us to do is just to admit it. To say again is what the word confess means. And so as they told them to continue in the grace of God, on the next Sabbath, it says almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So notice this, that Paul, because of the way that he preached, because of what he preached, it intrigued them and they wanted to hear more. And many of them came back the next week, not just by themselves, but they brought droves of other people with them. It says that most of the city came back the next day or the next Sabbath to hear what Paul proclaimed. So when they arrived, what did they hear? They heard the same message again. But what I want to point out is their response is not to Paul himself, because Paul was a short guy. Uh, uh, many of the historians tell us he had a hooked nose, that after many missionary journeys, he had a leaky eye. They weren't there to meet up with him 
because he was somebody great. They were there to meet up with him because of the message that he preached and because he taught them the scriptures. But what I want to say is that this week, we look at the different responses of people to the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us what goes on. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse... Excuse me, I missed it. Lost my place, I got off on a tangent there. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 says this. It says that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, meaning the, the fathers of Israel, he spoke to them through the prophets, those men that he called to be their mouthpiece, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And so when Paul preaches, he preaches the message of Christ through the Old Testament. And they were tasting that message, and because they had tasted, they wanted more. They wanted to be satisfied. And so when the group broke up, many of them brought others with them. So what we must realize is that God's word, we talked about it last week, God's word brings salvation. Many people received it and they were saved. But what we also must realize is when it's spoken in any particular setting, it will divide the group. This week we're going to look at a group that was completely, they would reject the message of Christ. They would push people away that would try to tell them about Jesus. And so in any group, there's always those that accept it and those who reject it. So in verse 45, it says that um, when the Jews saw the multitudes, this is the same multitudes that were gathering almost the whole town, they were filled with envy, contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. So the Jews that were gathering, those that had not received the message, they saw all the people that gathered together and they're like, look at all these people. We've never had that many people to come to our services. Paul shows up and all of a sudden the whole town comes in. What's the deal? They're upset. They're envious. Maybe a little greedy. They're like, hey, we're not this popular. Why is this guy this popular? And they begin to reject what Paul said because they were full of envy. The gospel, when it's proclaimed to a person or to a people, does not allow room for a person to remain neutral once they've heard it. I oftentimes would leave church when I was young, and I, I would be like, yeah, that's a good message, and I would go on about my business. But I never responded to it. Last week, we looked at the group that had responded, and they are like, this is good news. I've been trying to be righteous. I've been trying to follow the law. But every time I tried to follow it, I failed at it, and it just left me feeling more condemned. So if Jesus is the way for me to be saved, I don't have to follow the law anymore to be righteous on my own. This is good news because I can just kind of raise up my hands and be like, hey, I couldn't do it. God knew that. He provided a way so that I don't have to do it anymore. He did it for me. And that's wonderful news. But there's also this group that's envious. They see that they're proclaiming that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. So the Jews can no longer have their God club where it's like, it's all about us. God picked us. They're going, wait, anybody can come? Anybody can have this free gift of salvation? Well, that's not fair. We've been living according to the law all these years. What's the deal? And so they get upset. The word of God, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, the word of God is living it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of our soul 
and our spirit, meaning the, the, the part of us that, that lives for the flesh and the part of us that lives for God. It pierces between those two individuals. Paul writes that we have two natures. We're still in the world, but we're not of it, but we still struggle against sin. And so Paul writes there, or the writer of Hebrews, excuse me, many believe Paul wrote Hebrews, but the jury's out on that. But the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's a discerner. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. That's amazing to me because sometimes I can't even tell why I do things. You know, the other night I'd fallen asleep on the couch and I was embarrassed because it was two in the morning. My wife come down, comes downstairs. She goes, what, why didn't you come to bed? Well, I was up studying, but I laid down on the couch to finish my reading. And guess what happened? My eyes start, you know, I was like one of those little babies that you get your kids when they're young. Probably not your boys, but your girls. And you lay it down and the eyes, they just go, they close. And then when you, lay, you stand it up and the eyes go, boop. Well, I laid down thinking, hey, I can read. It's only midnight. I can lay down and read, right? Nah. My point is I woke up. My wife came downstairs. I was embarrassed that I fell asleep because I, I wanted to finish my study. And she, she looked at me. She goes, what have you been doing? I go, uh, I, I just got done studying. I lied to her. I flat out lied. And uh, so I, I run upstairs. And I'm like, and she's, I was like, what do you mean what was I doing? Of course I was studying. And I was, I was embarrassed. But because I was embarrassed and I was a little prideful, I lied to her. And she finally was like, you know, what's the deal? And she, she knew I'd been sleeping. I had a big print on the side of my face, you know. And she goes, I, I just don't understand. Why did you lie to me? And I go, I have no idea. I was embarrassed. I was full of pride. I, I didn't want to be found out being, you know, tired. I didn't want to admit that I had failed in the thing I was trying to do. And she didn't care whether I was sleeping or not. She was just like, come to bed if you're going to sleep. You know, but we, we lie about things trying to cover up, not just about the goofy stuff, but about serious stuff. Thinking that we can fool others. Meanwhile, God sees the big imprint on our face. Look, I know that you think you can fool me on this thing, but you've sinned. You've fallen short. The only one you're fooling, if anybody, is you're trying to fool yourself and you know better. You know you failed. I'm not trying to like reveal that into you because I don't know. I gave you Jesus because I knew you needed salvation. I knew that you had fallen short of the glory of God. I knew you couldn't do it on your own. So just give it up. Take off the blinders. Reveal to me, confess to me that you need me. And when you do that, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to be like the, the, the father, the prodigal son. I, I'm not going to be judgmental anymore. I'm going to say, hey, you trusted my son? Come into the joy of your Lord. I want to receive you. That's why I sent my son to die for you. I didn't do it just so you could just hang out and wallow in sin and be self-condemned. I did it because I love you enough and I, you're worthy. You're my creation. And so here's what happens though. Men become envious because Christ becomes famous and all of a sudden they're humbled. But if we want to live our lives to make ourselves famous and avoid making Christ famous in our lives, we're missing the purpose for why he created us. And so this gives a little insight into what's going on with these two groups that are being torn in two different directions. There's this one group going, cool, 
God is going to receive me. He's going to make me one of his sons and daughters. And this other group goes, hey, I thought we were your sons and daughters. Why are you letting all these other people in? And so, uh, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas, because of those that were contradicting and opposing them, they had already proclaimed the message of salvation. They want to make sure that this group realizes, hey, you're rejecting Christ. And so in verse 46, Paul and Barnabas, they grew bold. And they said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, realize that you're rejecting it. You're judging yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. He says, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, now we're going to turn to the Gentiles. He's telling them, hey, no, don't worry. Don't be stumbled by this. God still loves you and he wants you to have salvation too. He even came to the world. He came to you to tell you first. You got first dibs. <coughs> but since you're rejecting him, he's told us to go to the Gentiles. That's fine if you want to reject it. If you, if you don't want to receive Christ, that's fine. But now we're going to go tell everybody else because it's for them too. And if that stumbles you, I don't know what to tell you. But God died for the whole world not just you. And so, uh, verse 47, for so the Lord has commanded us. He reveals to them from their Old Testament scriptures. This was God's plan all along. This isn't some new thing. This isn't some heresy. This is God's plan all along. He quotes from the book of Isaiah, which was their scriptures. He says, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for the salvation to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 48, well, before we go there, I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 1. Because Paul kind of expounds on this same idea when he's writing to the, the Gentiles in Rome. He says, you know, there's no difference anymore between Jew and Gentile. He says, we've all been received by God. In verse 16, he says, this is the gospel. Verse 16 in Romans 1, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of this good news. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is risen, written, the just shall live by faith. <coughs> so even when they were trusting in God in the Old Testament, making those sacrifices, they were realizing that there, it was their faith in God that was making them righteous by following His ways. So let's look at the response to the message. Because last week, Paul proclaimed the message. This week, all of these people from this entire town of Antioch and Pisidia, they all came together and they said, we want to hear this message. But notice that this message, it, it brings two different responses. The response from the first group can be found in verse 48 and 49. It says there, when the Gentiles heard this message, they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, they believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. So the Gentiles, those who received the word of God, this was their response. Number one, they were glad. They were given joy. They had joy. They knew that the creator of heaven and earth loved them enough to die in their place. And they received it. They believed it by faith. And as a result of that, they had joy. They had worth now. God had considered them worthy of the death of his son. That's an amazing 
offering. I mean, how many people do you know that would take their only child, if they only had one, and put them in your place if, you're, if they could, if something bad was going to happen to you as a shield? Hey, you don't have to bear the brunt of this thing. I'm going to put my kid in your place. Nobody. Our children mean everything to us, right? God did that. Number two, they glorified the word of the Lord. The word of God became important to them. It took up the right place in their life. Glorified is a word that we hear all the time, but I looked up the word because I didn't know how to explain it. To glorify something means to esteem it, to honor it, and to ascribe greatness to it. So when they heard the word of the Lord, they ascribed greatness to the word of the Lord. They sought for what it was the very words that proceeded from the mouth of God. Number three, they believed in Jesus for their personal salvation. If you receive the word of God, you receive Jesus as your salvation. Number four, the word of the Lord spread through them, throughout the region. So they received it, they had joy, they put God's word in the rightful place in their life, they obeyed it, they believed in Jesus for salvation, and as a result, they had been saved themselves and they wanted other people to hear the same message and have the same opportunity as they did. So then there's this other group. They respond. Verse 50. But, that's the contrast. He's giving a contrast between the Gentile response and the Jews. The Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city. They raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they expelled them from the region. One group spreads the word in their region. The other group, they expel the word from the region or they expel the messengers. And what I love here, well, what I don't love is that they were filled with envy still and so they stirred up others. Not only were they against Christ, but they stirred up others to be against Paul and Barnabas and the message of the gospel through Jesus. Then they persecuted the messengers of the truth. They persecuted Paul and Barnabas. They rejected them. They pushed them away, it says, and they sent the messengers of God out of their region. But what I want to point out is that Paul, though Paul and Barnabas are being sent out of this Antioch of Pisidia. They're going to go to another place. But because they had already spread the message of the gospel, though they took the messengers and they sent them away, the message was still already there. It's like a man, if he was going to walk by someone's yard and throw seed in it. If he throws seed in it, maybe the guy that owns the house sends him away and says, get out of my yard. But that seed already landed on the soil. It's already got the potential to become whatever that seed is and grow. And so that's what's happened. There's already this group that received the message. So they can send Paul and Barnabas away. The message is already there. It's already going to take root. And I love what, it, what Paul writes later in the book of Corinthians because he said, as I went, I sowed seed. And then another guy by the name of Apollos, he watered the seed, but it's God who gives the increase. So you, maybe you've witnessed to somebody before. Maybe you've tried to, to tell them about Jesus and they rejected you. They sent you away. They said, leave me alone. I don't want to hear it anymore. Don't lose heart. Don't be distracted or discouraged because keep shedding that seed. Keep throwing it out there somebody's going to bite. It's like fishing. You go to a place and you throw a lure in the water. You don't catch anything. Move on to the next pond. But at the same time, there might be fish there later, so go back again. Somebody else might go fishing there and catch something. But my point is, is that though we sow the seed and some of us are used to water the seed, 
It's God who will give the increase. I can tell you for years that many people, God kept dropping them in my life and telling them, you know, go, go witness to this guy. Go tell him about Jesus. Go love on him. Go take him out to lunch. And all these conversations that I had with people, they didn't result in salvation right away. But down the road, God sent his Holy Spirit convicting me along the way, showing me I needed salvation, showing me that my life was not all that it could be if I knew Jesus. And a result of that is I got saved. And it was just like seven years ago now. But all through college, God kept dropping people in my life. And it didn't result, the word of God didn't result in salvation for many years but it did result in salvation. So we just got to keep trusting God and doing what he puts in front of us. And that's what these men are going to do. Verse 51. But they shook the dust from their feet against the Jews and they came to Iconium. They moved on, says there, from Antioch down to Iconium, which is about 50 to 70 miles away. So they moved on. They didn't stay there, you know, trying to preach the same message to the people that rejected them. They trusted it to the Lord, and it says they shook the dust off of their feet. Now, this is a cultural thing because the Jews, oftentimes, as they left a city, a non-Jewish city, they would shake the dust off their feet because they didn't want to be defiled. They didn't want to get pagan cooties. They didn't want to be, you know, stained by that nasty city. And uh, but it was an outward action, but. What Jesus told his disciples was along this same thing in Matthew chapter 10. He had sent out his uh, 12 disciples to share the message of, of salvation and repentance. And in Matthew chapter 10 verse 5, when he sent them out, it says, These 12 Jesus sent out and he commanded them saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans. He said, But first... Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, that's God's pattern. First to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. And as you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, now go and freely give. You've received the message of Christ, now go and freely give it to others. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copy in your money. I said that when I was practicing too. Copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. In other words, I'm sending you out, and I'll provide for you as you go. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire in it who is worthy, and stay there until you go out. And when you go into a house, behold, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. In other words, Find a place where you can stay and remain safe. Verse 14, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. And he tells them that. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. We all know the the message of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was a depraved town. They were living a life of ease. And because of that, God judged them. And Sodom and Gomorrah hadn't, you know, they had a few righteous people living. They were the neighboring city to, to Abraham's land. He says, shake off the dust from your feet, but it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. In other words, if the message of Jesus comes into a city and they see all the miracles that the people that are able to do 
because they've been sent by Christ and they reject the gospel, that's on them. If you go and share the truth with them and they reject it, that's on them. You've done your part. Realize that as Christians, when we share Jesus with people, we can't save anybody. Only God can save souls. Only God can change the heart. Our job is not to save them. Our job is to tell them the truth. And then we leave the results up to him. And so Jesus told his disciples the same thing. But notice my point in sharing that, that passage is that Jesus told them, when you leave that city, shake the dust off your feet. In other words, leave the rest to me. And so back in our text in Acts, I should have marked the page there. I lost my little bookmark. Acts chapter 13, they shook the dust off their feet against them as a sign of judgment saying, hey, it's on you now. We told you the truth. What you do with it is on your own. And we, they went to Iconium. And it says there that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What I want to point out is that though there was a group that accepted the message and there was a group, a large group, that rejected the message, it says there at the very end of the passage as they're leaving and they go to Iconium, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. In other words, just because they had been rejected in that city, it did not deter them from continuing on the mission that God gave them. I think that's encouraging because many times we feel like we share with people, we pray for people, and sometimes we don't see a response right away. And our first thing is to get discouraged. Don't be discouraged by those who rejected. Be encouraged that God would see fit to use you at all. Be encouraged that God's going to use it whether you get to see the results or not. So let's real quick go into chapter 14. It says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. This is their pattern. And so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the Christians. It's funny to me. It's the same exact thing. They went into a town, they went to the synagogue, they shared the message of Jesus. The Greeks believed, uh, many, it says both the Jews, some of the Jews and some of the Greeks believed, but the unbelieving Jews, the ones that were the most self-righteous, they stirred up a group against and they poisoned those that didn't believe and they tried to get those that did believe to not believe. They, they wanted to stir up division to cause them to not accept Christ. Verse 3 says, because of this poisoning of the minds of those that were Christians in that city, therefore Paul and Barnabas stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, by granting that signs and wonders would be done by their hands. In other words, that message that they proclaimed, God confirmed it by doing mighty works through them. Sick were healed, lame would walk, and signs and wonders will follow where believers are proclaiming the message of Christ. God uses that sometimes to show people, look, my power is not a power from this world. And then verse 4 says, but the multitude of the city was divided. There again, the word of God brings division. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stoned Paul and Barnabas, they became aware of it, and they fled to Lystra and Derb, 
or Derby, I don't know, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there also. So they flee from Iconium with the threat of basically being stoned, and they go to, this is not the stone that we think of, this is having rocks thrown at them. They flee from Iconium to Lystra and Derb. You got to explain, because I mean, I hear the word stone, and my mind goes there. I'm like, what were they? They were going to make them do drugs? No, that's not the point. They were going from Iconium to Lystra and Derb, but they went there because they were being persecuted. Remember, God uses persecution to spread the message. They're fleeing what seems like us to them being chickens. I don't know about you guys, but somebody's throwing rocks at me. I'm running. That's what I do. But they're fleeing because of persecution will give two more towns the opportunity to hear the message of Christ. Their rejection in Antioch of Pisidia gives the opportunity for Iconium to hear the message of Christ. Anytime you share Jesus with somebody and you feel like, well, I'm talking to a fence post here, they're not going to receive it. Go to another person. That rejection might mean somebody else that's actually ready to receive it. Go to them next. You don't know who it is. You know, I love what it says there in verse 48. As many as have been appointed to eternal life believed in Christ. Let me ask you, are you appointed? Are you chosen? You say, well, how do I know if I'm chosen to be someone who receives the message of Christ? Well, receive it. And then you'll know that you're chosen. You know, we always get up, caught up in this. Is God completely sovereign? Does he take my free choice away? Or is my free choice too strong to fight God's sovereignty and his control over everything? And the reality is, is that God gives us free will and he's completely in control. The fact that there are those who are appointed to eternal life doesn't say that he's appointed to some to not believe in Jesus. What it says is that God is outside of time and space, and so he sees the end from the beginning as if he was looking at a timeline on a, on a big board. He already knows if you're going to receive Christ or not. The reality is, is will you accept that calling? You see, the Word of God divides our hearts so that we can see that we need salvation. But it also divides our hearts after we've been saved because God's still perfecting us. He's still trying to show us the places where we need to grow. And the reality is, is that God's word is not finished at salvation. It's something that we still need to dwell on and receive. It's something that we still need to receive daily sustenance of. And the reality is, is that many people read the word of God like the Jews did in those days, and they weren't looking to learn something new so that their lives could be transformed into the image of God They were just looking to know more so they could prove to everyone else how how righteous and how religious they were. And we can approach God's word and we can stop listening for God to give us something new to change us. And we can approach it as if it's something like a, a history book where we just read it so we can know more about it. But what God wants to do with his word is he not only wants to divide groups from those who believe and those who don't. We think of division, we think, well, that's bad. We don't want people to be divided and not like each other. But God wants to cause division in your families. So you can see that those that are set apart for God's use and those that are still living for the world. Not so that there can be strife and division, but so that we can know, hey, you can know that you're saved and you can know that you're not. 
God makes that division so that we'll know and we won't spend our whole lives going, well, I'm probably all right, and then wake up in hell. He wants us to know the difference. But he also wants to use the same word that got me saved in the first place, that got you saved in the first place, and he wants to transform you and cut the things away from your life that don't glorify God so that you can reflect his image to the world, so that they can see that, in fact, there is a way that leads to everlasting life. Proverbs says that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end of it leads to destruction. And if you guys watch the news at all or read the paper, you see that the world isn't getting better as time goes on. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. But God never said that this world would get better and better. What he said was, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've already overcome the world. The people that are being killed in foreign countries and being put to death for their faith in Christ, let me tell you that their hope is not in vain because the minute that they die, having their head lobbed off or being tortured to death, the minute that they die, they're not disappointed that they lived their life and, and would not deny Christ. They're in joy because they're in the presence of their Lord. They'll be with Him for eternity. That's the hope that we trust in. Not the hope that God will give us a more comfy life or an easier job or whatever your hope might be in. Our hope is that God will use us as a massive evacuation plan. We have salvation. We who have salvation. Our job is not to be comfy here. It's to take as many people with us to heaven as we can. And as a result of that, there will be great joy. There will be worship services like you wouldn't believe in heaven. And when we're in the presence of God, when we walk up and we see Him face to face, and let me tell you, everyone that passes on will be at the throne of God and they will be judged. Those who are in Christ, they will be judged and the Lord will say, enter into the joy of your Lord. Those who are without a Savior, they'll walk up and they'll be like, what, my, my good is outweighing my bad? And God will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Let God's word divide your heart. Don't grow hard like the Jews. I say the Jews, but what I mean is there were Gentiles that rejected it as well. Don't let your heart grow hard, hard to what God wants to speak to you. Let it just have its way with your life. And let me tell you, that my life after Christ far exceedingly is blessed compared to my life before Christ. I had no way. I was trying to please this guy and that guy and that person and live for myself and I was never satisfied. But in Christ, I have a focus. And my focus is not the little things that we caught up, get caught up in this world. My focus is that I would please my Father who is in heaven and that one day I would be able to just be in his presence and see him for who he is and that I would be in his likeness. I would be purified. All the things that I struggle with, sin and, uh, and relationships and all the things that, that I fail at, when I'm in heaven, I won't have to worry about that anymore. I love what 1 John chapter 3 says. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him 
for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, the hope that is in Christ, purifies himself just as he is pure. So we're going to take communion this morning. I'm going to play a song on the, on the little get fiddle over there. We're going to sing. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to just consider what does it mean to follow Christ? What does God expect of me now that I'm His? Or maybe if you're not His, you know, what, what is salvation and, and how do I get it? Don't leave here today without dealing with that. But I'll, I want you to take this time as we take communion, remembering back to what God has done for us, seeing what He has done for us, what He wants to do in us today, and looking forward to the time that we'll eat this supper as the family of God in His presence with Him, as the head of the table. And what this does is it reminds us that we are all humble in the sight of God. And as we recognize that humility and that humbleness, then we'll also realize that we all have one Father in heaven. And it'll just cause us to have a love for one another. Jesus said, practice this until I come back. And, and He's going to come back one day. And so we as His children, we join together to remember His sacrifice, to ask Him, Lord, how am I doing in my walk with You today? Am I being obedient in the things that you're trying to show me? And just let them search your heart. This is the time, if you will, to rededicate and say, Lord, I want to start over. And uh, let me tell you that he'll honor that. And uh, so let's, uh, let's finish with a song and then uh, we'll take communion.